Take a Bible out this morning. Find the New Testament book of James. There's notes in the bulletin if you like to follow along with the notes. Last week we kicked off our summer sermon series, Faith That Works. We're just going to walk through the book of James. Last week we covered one verse in 40 minutes. This morning we're covering three verses, which means we should be done about one. So I hope you brought a snack. I want to point out a couple of things, and then I'm going to give you the big idea, and then we're going to read these three verses in James. The first thing I want you to see is this. After refusing to identify himself as Jesus' brother, that makes sense if you were here last week in James 1.1, James refers to his audience as my brothers. Same word in the Greek, a term that is repeated over a dozen times in the book of James. This is not central to what we're looking at or talking about this morning. I just think it's interesting that the one place in the letter where you would expect James to pull rank and to tell you, hey, by the way, I am Jesus's baby brother, he doesn't do it. You don't read the word brother in verse 1. All the way through the rest of the book, he uses the the term that you're looking for in verse 1, brothers, brethren, my brothers, Uh, He just repeats it over and over and over again. And we talked about last week, I don't want to re-preach last week's sermon, but we talked about the fact when you look at James 1.1 and you don't see James pulling rank, referring to himself as Jesus' brother, that it teaches us something about entitlement, it teaches us something about how we serve and why we serve, and it teaches us something about what true humility looks like. So I just wanted to point that out to you. Another thing I want you to know before we read these verses is this, two of James' 59 commands are found in our passage this morning. So I told you last week, there's 108 verses in the book of James. In those 108 verses, there are 59 imperatives, 59 commands, 59 things that James says, do this, do that. Two of them are in our passage, and if you just jump ahead, you can find them pretty easily. One of the commands he's going to give us is count it all joy. And then the second command begins with the word let. He says, let steadfastness have its full effect. So those are the two commands. We're to count something as joy and we are to let steadfastness have its full effect in our lives. And I just want to remind you, okay, I'm not going to tell you every week how many commands, how many imperatives, but I just want to remind you of this. And we may talk about this every single week. All these commands in the book of James, he is not giving us a to-do list of how we can earn God's love. He's not saying do X, Y, and Z, count this and let this in order that God will love you, right? Over and over and over again, we're going to have to take ourselves back to James 4, 6. And in James 4, 6, we read this, he gives more grace. God opposes the proud and he gives grace grace to the humble. Our salvation, our relationship with God is not built on how well we can keep these 59 commands. It's built on the rock-solid foundation of God's grace. What James is doing with all these commands is he's saying, you need to look at your life, and I need to look at my life, and we need to make sure that we have faith that actually saves He's going to get to it later, and he's going to say the demons have faith. They have a kind of faith, and it doesn't save. It's not redemptive. 
So you need to look at your heart, and I need to look at my life, and we need to say, do we have faith that saves? Do we have faith that works? That's the question to us. Here's the big idea of our passage. God uses trials to deepen our faith and to move us towards spiritual maturity. God uses trials to deepen our faith and to move us towards spiritual maturity. So I'll let you fill those in, and I want you to look at James chapter 1. We're going to read verse 2, 3, and 4, and then we're going to pray, ask God to guide us this morning. James chapter 1, verse 2, the Word of God says this, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That's the word of God. Let's pray together. Father, we come to these three verses in the book of James beginning of this book, verses that set the tone for what we see in the rest of James, verses that fly in the face of the way so many people live their lives and think about reality and think about spiritual things. Father, we pray for eyes to see the truth this morning. We pray for hearts that would receive your word. Father, help us to be humble. We pray this morning for your grace. We pray for more grace, trusting that you give grace to the humble. Father, give us understanding of these verses and help us to think through how they might apply to our lives and how they change the way that we live and change the way that we think. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I like sports. I don't know how many of you like sports. I've seen several people comment lately that they're glad basketball season is over. They don't have to watch basketball anymore. Basketball is my favorite sport, so I'm kind of bummed. And uh, this long stretch of baseball over the summer is nap season at my house, so I'm ready for some, some good naps. Some of you are excited. I like sports. I like to talk about sports. I like watching sports on t- TV. I even like watching the TV when the sports aren't on and the guys are just talking about the sports that are about to be on or that were just on. And my wife thinks that she really doesn't get into sports a whole lot, but she really thinks that's dumb, listening to other people talk about what's about to happen and prognosticate or listening to people talk about what just happened and analyze it. Uh, that's sort of over her head, but it's something I really like to do. And I thought about it this week. There's really four ways to get a job talking about sports, okay? It's, there's not a lot of easy career paths into being a broadcaster. One, you can be a retired professional athlete, so most of us don't meet that qualification, but that's one way. You don't have to have any other qualification. If you are a professional athlete, you got a shot at being on. Uh, number two, you can be really good-looking, right? You don't have to know much of anything, but if you're easy on the eyes, they'll put you on TV and people will listen to you. Number three, you can be like nerdy, geeky, super smart. Like you don't have to be good looking. Some, somebody in the back just raised their hands and thinks they're in on that one. You don't have to be good looking. You don't have to be athletic. If you can crunch the numbers and do the analytics and know the percentages and all the stats and all that stuff, you got an outside chance. Or here's the fourth path. Okay, number four, you can just be bombastic. 
like over-the-top, stupid, crazy, say the most ridiculous things. It doesn't matter if you believe them or you don't believe them. You just say bombastic things. And there's people on TV like that. And I'll give you an example of that. His name is Skip Bayless, okay? In high school, he averaged 1.4 points a game on the junior varsity basketball team. He's not an athlete, okay? You can look at him. You th- some of you may think, well, he's kind of a handsome guy. He's not a supermodel, okay? He's not just great looking. And he's not super, super intelligent. What he is is bombastic. He just gets on TV, and this is his job. They pay him an incredible amount of money to do this. Get on TV. We're going to point the camera at you. We're going to put the little thing up that says what we're talking about, and you just say the most outrageous ridiculous thing that comes into your mind. You don't have to believe it. You don't have to think that it's true. Just be crazy and bombastic and throw it out there. And then we're going to put somebody else who's really loud at the desk next to you, and you're just going to argue. And people like me are going to watch it all day long. It's going to be great. We're going to make a million dollars. So I'm going to give you just one example of this. Okay, Some of you, you're basketball fans. You don't care about this. Several months ago, he tweeted about the NBA Finals, and this is what he said. Call me crazy. Call it heart overhead. I say thunder, that's Oklahoma City thunder, over the Sixers, Philadelphia 76ers, for the NBA title. Russ, that's Russell Westbrook, takes over in the playoffs. He beats Utah in seven, Houston in six, Golden State in seven, and Philly in six. Russ's revenge. Now look, you don't have to know anything about basketball to get my point. Here's my point. When he tweeted that out, no one on planet Earth thought that was going to happen including Skip Bayless. No one. No one thought it was going to happen. But if you say something boring, if you say what you really think is going to happen, well, this just, it's boring. And nobody's going to pay any money to listen to that. So his job on TV is to just be bombastic, just to spout off and say crazy things that no one else thinks or no one else says so that then you can have debate and argument and things like that. Some of you know people like that in your life. You're like, I know somebody like that. They just say things. I don't think they even know what they're saying or they believe what they're saying. They just open their mouth and crazy things come out. Some of you think James is in that category. When James says, look at it again in James 1-2. Count it all joy. Command number 1 of 59. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Some of you hear that verse. You're in church, so you wouldn't dare say it out loud. But you hear that verse. You read that verse. You've been through a trial. You're going through a trial. Maybe you know there's a trial coming up in your life. And you read that verse and you say, that's ridiculous. That's crazy talk. Nobody believes that. Count it joy when you face trials of various kinds. Who talks like that? Who says something like that? Well, James does. And you may be surprised to know he's not the only one in the New Testament that says something very, very similar to that. Another person who says something similar to that is a guy named Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said this in Matthew 5. 
Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. I bet not a single one of you, when Thanksgiving rolls around and you sit at your Thanksgiving table and you go around and you say, okay, everybody's going to say one thing you're thankful for, one thing that you're blessed for. I bet not one of you has ever raised your hand and said, I am so blessed that people persecute me and revile me and slander me. No, you say family, for my house, for my job. If you're the spiritual person in the family, you say, well, I'm thankful for Jesus or I'm thankful for the Bible. But Jesus says something very similar to what James says. James says, count it joy. Rejoice in your trials. And Jesus says something very similar. Rejoice and be glad. Your reward is great in heaven. I told you that James tracks through the Sermon on the Mount almost point by point, and this is one example. So you say, okay, well, maybe it's just the brothers, James and big brother Jesus. Maybe that's just like a little soapbox issue for them. It's not just them. The Apostle Paul agrees with them. Look what Paul says in Romans 5. He says, more than that, we rejoice in our sufferings. Again, just stop. You're familiar with it. You've heard the verse. You know it's a churchy thing to say, but who says that? Rejoice in our sufferings. We know that suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character. Character produces hope. Hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who is given to us. Rejoice in your suffering. So we got now Jesus, and then we lump James in there, and we have Paul, and let's just add one more for fun. How about Peter? 1 Peter chapter 1. He says, in this, you rejoice. Same word. Count it all joy. Rejoice. It's the same word. In this you rejoice, though for now, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. You say, various trials? Where have I read that before? You just read it in James 1, 2. You're rejoicing when you're grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Listen to me. When James says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, this is not just James being James. This is not the kind of thing you just chalk up to some guy being bombastic and shooting from the hip and just saying whatever comes to his mind. This is something you see all the way throughout the New Testament. Jesus says it. James says it. Paul says it. Peter says it. I just want you to understand this. This is on your notes. Several other New Testament passages add weight to the instructions that we read in James. Like There's a certain weightiness when you read this and you say, wait a minute, Jesus said almost the exact same thing. The Apostle Paul said almost the exact same thing. The Apostle Peter said almost the exact same thing. All these guys on the exact same page when it comes to the trials and the suffering that we face in life, and all of them to a man saying, rejoice in it. Be glad in it. Look, if you find it once in the Bible, that's enough. You don't need backup. You don't need anything else added to it to make it weighty. I'm just saying to you, when you see this counterintuitive statement repeated almost word for word by four different people in four different places, you say, maybe I need to pay attention to this. Maybe I need to think through what it looks like to count it all joy when I face trials 
of various kinds, and we need to think through what that means in our lives. So that's our goal this morning. I want to start by showing you four truths from the passage, and then we'll try to make some application. We're going to work backwards through our three verses, okay? Here we go. First truth, the goal of our faith is maturity. That's the goal, maturity. James uses the words perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. He wants his people to be mature. That's the goal. That's the purpose in everything that he's describing here. And I just want you to be honest for a moment, and I want you to think about the typical Christian in the Bible Belt of the United States of America. Somebody who says that they have faith in Jesus. And I want you to ask yourself, if you just sat that person down and you talked to them on an honest heart-to-heart level and you said to them, what is the goal, what is the point of your faith? If you just looked at their life or you just looked at their social media page and you knew that they claimed to have faith in Jesus and you were trying to deduce or figure out what is, what is the goal that they're chasing after, what is the most important thing to them, would it be maturity? Would it be the idea that we are to be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing? Or would some of those people, if they were honest with you, say, the point is that I go to heaven someday. I just want to go to heaven. I don't want to go to hell. Well, nobody wants to go to hell. I just I want to get saved so I can go to heaven when I die. I think for a lot of people, that's the point. And it doesn't go any further than that. I just don't want to burn when I die. So I'm going to do this. I'm going to have faith so that I can go to heaven. James says that's not really the point. The point is that you would be mature, perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That's the goal that we're chasing after. I think if you're honest and you looked at the United States, you would say for a lot of us the goal is just to be comfortable, healthy, safe, secure, just to kind of live an, an easygoing life. Say, I don't have to be wealthy. I don't have to have millions and millions of dollars. I just, I just kind of want to be comfortable. I just kind of want everything to rock along, and I don't want to lose my job, and I don't want to lose my house, and I pay my bills, and just that's the goal. I think for a lot of people, the goal is some sort of party politics, and then they take Jesus and they stamp him on top of whatever it is they're trying to achieve on a political level. That's really the most important thing. James says, this is the goal of your faith. This is the purpose in all of it, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. And it's worth just stopping to ask ourselves when we're evaluating our own faith to say, my faith, is that what I'm moving towards? Or am I moving towards something else? I'm not asking you if you are perfect, if you are complete, if you lack nothing. I'm saying, are you moving towards that goal? Yes or no? Number one, the goal of our faith is maturity. Number two, maturity comes through testing. It comes through testing. Look at verse three. He says, the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. This word here, testing, is only found about four places in the Bible. It's found here in James, 
It's found in 1 Peter 1 that we read just a minute ago. James, uh, excuse me, Peter talked about the testing of your faith, like refining gold or refining silver. And you find it twice, the same word in the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, it's used explicitly for refining, removing impurities from a precious metal. Not to destroy or ruin or waste or get rid of the metal, but to purify it and to cleanse it, to make it perfect and complete and whole the way that it was intended to be. James says the testing of our faith produces steadfastness. Now, I'm reading out of the ESV, so that's the word in the ESV, steadfastness. Some of you guys read out of different translations, and I looked up some of the different words that are used. Here's some of the other words used in place of steadfastness. Endurance, patience, perseverance, fortitude, toughness. I even read one Bible commentator this week who used the word grit. Think about that. Just sort of put that word into that verse. You know that the testing of your faith produces spiritual grit. How many of you have seen one of the true grit movies? All right? Both of them? 1968, Charles Portis wrote a novel. It's not very long. Novel's called True Grit. They made a movie a year later with John Wayne, and then recently they made one with Jeff Bridges. Uh, if you've read the book, the novel, you know that both of the movies are pretty true to the storyline. There's not a lot of variation or, or change from the original plot. And in the movie, you read about this young lady named Maddie, Maddie Ross, and she is out to hunt somebody down. She's out to hunt down Tom Chaney. Because Tom Chaney, sort of this low-level drifter, got mixed up with her father and shot him and killed him in cold blood. And she goes, she's trying to hire a guy named Rooster Cogburn, U.S. Marshal, to hunt down Tom Chaney and to bring him to justice. And they pick up a Texas Ranger along the way, and the story is all the adventures they have. But at the beginning of the book, when she's trying to figure out which one of the U.S. Marshals she's going to hire, she's asking around and she's saying, who would be best and who's, who's the most talented and who's the bravest? And she ends up saying, I want the guy with grit. I want the guy that I'm going to hire and he's going to stick with it. He's going to be tough enough. He's going to have integrity to keep his word. When it's difficult and when it's dangerous, he's not going to back down. He's not going to tuck tail and run. I want someone with grit. And when you read the book or when you watch the movies, you realize that Miss Maddie also has a pretty good measure of grit. She keeps talking about it in Rooster. He's a man of true grit, but she's the one throughout the book that really displays grit. What does she display? Endurance, patience, perseverance, and fortitude, and toughness, steadfastness. That's the idea that James is driving at here. He says there's going to be testing of your faith. God's not trying to crush you. He's trying to purify you. He's trying to refine you. Because there's a goal in mind, and the goal is not your comfort right now. The goal is not an easy life right now. The goal is that you would be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. And so your faith is going to be tested. You're going to face tests, and the result of those tests in the believer is grit. It's steadfastness. It's spiritual stick to Whatever you want to call it, that's what God's trying to build into your life. Number three, this testing 
comes through what James calls trials. That's verse 2. He says, you are going to meet trials of various kinds. What does that mean? What are trials of various kinds? Some Bible scholars say what James is talking about is poverty because that's a theme that runs all the way through the book of James from the earliest chapter to the end. James talks about people being poor. And so some people say that's, that's really what he's driving at is lack of money, lack of resources. Well, maybe. But if that's what he was driving at, he could have just said being poor. Instead, what he says is you're, you're going to meet trials of various kinds. Some people think it's persecution. Remember, we talked last week about James, who was the pastor in Jerusalem. Acts chapter 8, there was a persecution that broke out. And all the people who went to James' church, they were all scattered. They had to flee for their lives. They were refugees. They had to leave their homes behind if they didn't want to die, and they had to take off. Some people think that's what was on James' mind. But if that was all that was on his mind, he could have just said that. And what he actually said in verse 2, look at it again. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Various kinds. The word there in verse 2 is the Greek word poikilos. And you find the word actually in Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4 says, talking about Jesus, they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains. That's the word, various. Various trials. Various diseases, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. And when you read Matthew 4, you realize Matthew's not trying to just give you a list of these are the five diseases Jesus healed. He's just saying all kinds. Whatever you had, that's what he healed. And it's the exact same word used by little brother James when he says, you are going to meet trials of all kinds. Some of them are going to be financial in nature. Some of them might involve persecution on some level. I talked to a guy this week who told me he was fired for sharing his faith at work. That's a trial of various kinds. Some of it may be family-related. Some of it may be health-related. The point is not to say, here are the trials that James is including. He's just saying, look, the trials that you face in life, the difficulties that you face in life, all these various things that come your way that are difficult and challenging, this is how you need to think about those things. Don't think about those things like the world thinks about them. Think of those things as testing. Why is God testing you? He wants your faith to be rock solid. He wants you, you, when it comes to faith, to be steadfast and to have grit. Why does he want that? Because the end game goal, the ultimate aim in all of it, is that you're perfect and complete, lacking in nothing, that you're spiritually mature. So testing comes through trials, leads us to the last idea, which is this. We are called to rejoice in trials. We're not called to rejoice because of trials. You're not called to rejoice for the trial itself, but you're called in the, tri the trial, excuse me, to rejoice. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. I just want you to understand how big verse 2 is, okay? How powerful it is. When you get verse 2, 
it changes the way you look at everything else in your life. When you begin to wrap your mind around this one verse, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. When you get that built into your spiritual DNA, it changes the way you think about every single thing that happens in life. There's plenty of people out there who will tell you their take on the meaning of life. I looked up a few examples of that this week. I'll just put a few up on the screen for you to think about. Here's a guy named Pablo Picasso. He says, the meaning of life is to find your gift and the purpose of life is to give it away. And you say, oh, that's nice. I like that. Put it on a coffee cup. Post it on my Facebook wall. Ah, That's nice. Here's the next one. Famous philosopher in the United States named Joseph Campbell, he said, the meaning of life is whatever you ascribe it to be. Being alive is the meaning. You say, well, that's nice. I can't miss it. I'm alive. Whatever I want it to be, that's what it's going to be. That's encouraging. Bruce Lee, the meaning of life is that it is to be lived. You say, okay, I can do it. Meaning of life. Who's next? Aristotle. Happiness is the whole meaning and purpose of life. The whole aim and end of human existence. It kind of sounds like a very American ideal, doesn't it? Right? We just want to pursue happiness. Happiness is the end game. For a lot of people, that's it. That's the meaning of life. How about Whoopi? I think it's the first time I've ever quoted Whoopi in a sermon. <laughs> Whoopi says, we're here for a reason. I believe a bit of that reason is to throw little torches out to lead people through the dark. You say, oh, that's nice. That's why I'm here. That's the purpose. Throw little torches out to lead people through the dark. I think that's the first time I've quoted Whoopi. I know this is the first time I've ever quoted the Cookie Monster. Life is not all guessing games. Sometimes we have to care about friends, especially friends who love cookies. I can get on board with that last part. I can take some of that. I like cookies. I just want you to think about all those things we just read. Happiness, live your life, help other people, be a nice person. That's the meaning of life. Now I want you to look at James 1-2 again. James says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. One of my favorite Bible scholars is a guy named John Stott. He says this, To us, this may all sound quite amazing, but to James, it is the clue to the meaning of life. Listen to me. When you get this drilled down into your spiritual bones, it changes the way you look at everything that happens in your life. When you get these verses deep down in your soul and you preach them to yourself and you remind yourself that these things are true, and you drill it down, and you just go back to it over and over and over again, because you are going to meet trials of various kinds, this has the potential to change the way you think about all of it. James says when you face those trials, you rejoice. Why? 
Because you understand that God is testing you. Why would he do that? Because he wants you to have spiritual grit and steadfastness. Because his end game for you is not just a nice, happy, comfortable life now, but it's that you would be mature, perfect and complete, lacking nothing. And this is the process by which God brings all of that about. It will change the way you think about everything that happens in life. Two disclaimers, because some of us get confused here. The first disclaimer is this. When James says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, let me tell you one thing you do not get to do. You do not get to go to people who are suffering Walk right up to them, open your Bible to James 1, and say, Count it all joy, my brother, when you meet a trial of various kinds. Turn that frown upside down. You don't get to do that. You get to do what Jesus did for Mary and Martha when he walked into Bethany. And he talked to them about spiritual things. But what he ended up doing was just standing next to them, and he cried with them. That's what you get to do. And once you do that for a while, you may have an opportunity to talk about James chapter 1. But you don't lead with that. You don't use it as a Bible verse to club people over the head when they're suffering. Number two, and I mentioned this briefly. James is not saying that we rejoice because of these terrible things that happen in our lives. He's not saying you have to be happy about these rotten things that take place. And I like the wisdom of a a Bible scholar named Kent Hughes. He says this, James is not commanding that we exult on hearing that our career position has been given to our secretary or that the neighbor's children have leukemia or that one's spouse is adulterous. We're not not supposed to rejoice because of those things. Rather, James is commending the conscious embrace of a Christian understanding of life. There it is, the meaning of life. You've got to get it. And you've got to embrace this Christian way of thinking about the world that brings joy into the trials that come because of our Christianity. We're not saying you rejoice or you have joy because these lousy things are happening. We say that in the middle of all the lousy things that are happening, you consciously embrace a Christian way of thinking about the world. You put aside Cookie Monster and Whoopi and Aristotle and all the rest of them. You say, I'm not going to think like that. I'm going to think like this. James said it. Jesus said it. Paul said it. Peter said it. i got to drill it down into my bones. I'm going to rejoice and have joy in the trial. Not because of it, but in it. Those are the thoughts I want you to see from the passage. Let me give you three thoughts of application. We'll wrap it up. Number one, James is commanding us to do something that goes against the wisdom of the world. I just want to acknowledge that. I made it clear. It's obvious. But James is telling us to do something that all the other philosophers and all the other prognosticators don't talk about. Right? This is not, I'm sorry, ladies, and some of you guys, I won't name the guys, this is not the Hallmark Channel, where you watch the first 10 minutes and it all goes to pot, and then you say, don't worry, it's all going to be okay in the end. It's all going to be good. Just hang in there. Just hang in there. It's going to be good. That's not what we're talking about. Church historians tell us that James, the guy that wrote these verses, about 15 years later, around 62 A.D., 
in Jerusalem. Remember, he stayed. Pastor James stayed in Jerusalem. He was drug out into the streets by a group of Pharisees. They looked him in the eyeball and they said, this is your last chance to recant. Deny that Jesus is the Messiah or you're dead. He looked him in the eyeball and he said, Jesus is the Messiah. And they killed him to death with rocks in the streets of Jerusalem. That's not how Hallmark movies end. That's how it ended for this guy. So we're not talking about Hallmark stuff. We're not talking about Bobby McFerrin, don't worry, be happy. Like everything's going wrong in your life and just for some reason it's okay. That's not what we're saying. We're not talking about the wisdom of the Buddha, Siddhartha Buddha, who looked at his followers and he said, you just need to realize that suffering is an illusion. If you could just realize that all the things, all these trials, these various trials that you're facing, if you could just realize that they're not real, they wouldn't be so bad. That's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about the British idea of you just need to hold a stiff upper lip. We're not hold, talking about the, uh, the American version that says you just need to grin and bear it and tough it out. What we're saying is this. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Why? God is testing you. He wants you to have spiritual grit. The end game is that that grid is going to lead to maturity, that you're perfect and complete, lacking nothing. When you think about life in those terms, it changes the way you look at the world. This is countercultural in the United States. It's countercultural in India. It's countercultural in Europe. It's countercultural in Africa. I don't care where you go in the world, it's countercultural. Second, James is commanding us to do something we can't do on our own. I hate to burst your bubble, but you can't do this. You don't have it in you. And James knows that you don't have it in you. That's why James 4, 6 comes along where he says this. He gives more grace. Because the reality is this. The trial is going to come into your life and your first instinct is not going to be to rejoice in it. It's going to be to grumble about it. And when you do that, You don't beat yourself up. You go back to James 4, 6, and you say, God gives more grace. He opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. He's commanding us to do something we can't do on our own. And can I let you into a little clue that will help you understand the rest of the book of James? All the other 59 commands in this book, you also can't do on your own. And James knows it. Lastly, James is commanding us to do something based on what Jesus has already done for us. I just want to draw a connection here as we wrap it up. One of the things that you do not find in the book of James, I mentioned this last week, you don't find extended discussions about the cross. It's one of the things that bothered Martin Luther about the book of James. He said there's no gospel in it, there's no cross in it. And we talked about that last week. There is gospel in it. I just want you to understand that Jesus and then James and then Paul and then Peter all say exactly the same countercultural thing. When you read it in Matthew 5 and James 1 and Romans 5 and 1 Peter 1, you read it in all those places and you just, this week I took time and I wrote, hand wrote each of those out and looked at them. And I just sat back and I thought, it's almost like these guys compared notes or something. It's almost like they all agreed on what they were talking about. Do you think it's possible 
that when James and Paul got together in Acts 15, that they talked about more than just what kind of food can the Gentiles eat or not eat? You think it's possible they sat down and they talked about suffering and real life and how to handle that? And one of them said, hey, do you remember what, you remember what Jesus said about that? And they, they talked it through. And then when they wrote these letters, they say almost the exact same thing. We read Romans 5 earlier. It's almost word for word what James says in James chapter 1. Paul adds another little step or two in there, but it's the exact same idea. What we didn't read are the verses that come right before Romans 5, 3 to 5, and the verse that comes right after Romans 5, 3 to 5. And I just want to put those up on the screen. Romans 5, 1 to 2, and then verse 6. Paul says this, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, through Jesus, we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. He's saying, look, because of what Christ did on the cross, we have been reconciled. We have peace with God. He's not angry with us. We're at peace because of the cross. And then he puts in the verses 5, 3 to 5, rejoicing in your suffering and why we rejoice in our suffering. And then he wraps it up with this. While we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. I realize that in James chapter 1, James doesn't spell all of that out. But the things that he says are almost word for word what Paul says right in the middle of that passage. And i got to believe that when these two theological giants got together, they understood the gospel in the exact same way. And what we take away from it is this. This mindset of rejoicing in trials, this new way of thinking about the meaning of life, it's not just because it makes us feel better. It's not just because this is the way that we want to look at the world. It's rooted objectively in what Jesus has done for us. James isn't just pulling this stuff out of thin air. He's not like Skip Bayless just tweeting something out ridiculous so that he gets attention. This is grounded in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Here's the connection. Jesus suffered for us. He suffered for us. And because of that suffering, we've been reconciled to the Father and we have peace with the Father. We know that. We believe that. Because that's true, when we suffer, we don't look at it like the world and we don't look at it and say, well, God must be angry with me. Well, God must be trying to punish me. God must be trying to get back at me. We look at it completely different. And we say, no, 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 God's not angry with me. Jesus suffered for me. I have peace with God. I've been reconciled to the Father through Jesus. Let me tell you what's happening now. My faith is being tested. It's a trial. No question about it. God is testing me because he wants me to have spiritual steadfastness. He wants me to have grit so that in the end, I'm perfect and complete, lacking nothing. That's the end game. That's a completely different way of looking at life and a completely different way of looking at the trials that you face and that I face. And it's rooted not just in some crazy idea that James throws out for us, but it's rooted in the cross. It's rooted in what Jesus did for us, suffering so that we could be reconciled to the Father. 
I'm going to ask you to bow. We're going to pray together.